You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. All right, everybody, welcome back to Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. I got my co-host Eurosimos in the house. It's a new year, but nothing's changed on that front. We're still the two hosts of this podcast. <laughs> Today we have our dear friend. Michael Tosserian joining us again to dive deep into a topic that we consider to be particularly important, a topic that many people aren't really willing to to broach at this point in time, but it's important that we begin to flesh it out and and understand on a deeper level um, some things that can be observed um, through 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 the female psyche and some of the origins of what we see playing out today in terms of inversions and this hyper age of of political correctness and ultra feminization that's taking place and where the roots of that really do lie. This is a fascinating conversation. Um, So hope you guys had an amazing new year. Hope you had a beautiful Christmas. We're excited for this entire year ahead. We have some awesome episodes lined up. Um, to all our members of our community, friends of the truth, thank you so much for being involved and for supporting our work. And for anyone that is interested in connecting with like-minded community and receiving live and interacting teachings from us and from our guest experts who are podcast guests as well, you can head to friendsofthetruth.co to learn more and apply there. Anything you want to add for those listening, bro? No, just thank you again so much for for listening. And we're really fired up for this new year and to keep doing what we're doing. And we wish everyone nothing but the best. Keep striving, keep dreaming, keep keep working on yourself and, and going after what you want in life. That's it. Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Desarian. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. This is episode 102. And we have the incredible Michael Desarian back in the house a name that is familiar to most of our listeners, I'm sure. He's a mentor to both Erasmus and I. He's a key reason why this podcast even exists. If you're looking for an introduction into Michael, check out episode 78. We had an incredible dialogue um, there. Today, we're diving a bit deeper into something specific. We're going to look into, I guess, the, the, the feminine psyche a little bit and look into Michael's work regarding what he's called a dragon mother. So, Michael, do you want to give a little bit of an introduction as to, I guess, what get you what got you started exploring this avenue, um, and we'll go from there. Yeah, thanks, guys. I'm glad to be on, uh, and uh, be great to have you guys back on Unslaved very soon because I know you've had some really excellent interviews through the year. Maybe we could, you know, do highlights of that down the line. Sure, <clears throat> they've been really. Some of them have been really top notch. But yeah, no, this journey started for me back in 1989. Uh, no plan, you know, uh, it was about, it came out, it came actually into existence through studying, uh, you know, English art, 18th century narrative art. A uh, friend, his girlfriend had written a BA paper on it. And it uh, was totally changed my perception of, pre-Raphaelite art, a narrative art, which I'd been studying for many years, but I'd never studied it from the feminine point of view or the female point of view. And this uh, 
paper that you had done approached it from that. And I found it extremely intriguing, like one of the most intriguing things that had ever come across, a real mind bender, you know. Uh, but I was leaving for this, this was about 1989, and I was leaving for the States for my probably third and longest visit. And I took this paper with me, and I have it still, and I read through it, and it was my introduction. Looking at it now, you'd say, well, you know, this is pretty conventional. But back then, you know, no, it, it was really extraordinary for a male to see art or film or whatever through the feminine you know, uh, perspective. It's very, very important. When I got to the States, I was studying film in San Jose, and there, the same themes came up. <clears throat> in gothic horror films, <laughs> in film noir, uh, leading up to the modern genres, it's the same story, but particularly with the gothic horror films. Uh, the role of the female is uh, very intriguing, more complex than most viewers realize. And then when you get to film noir, uh, you know you have a whole other octave. And then moving into modern films as well, you get it. Uh, sometimes beautifully rendered. And so this uh, the this uh, study then, you know, I was very, very passionate about it. That's the main thing to get, that this carried me through many years. And I never really left it done. So passing through the mid-90s, continued doing film papers that uh, demanded, you know, this would be like German film <clears throat> Uh, other genres that demanded very deeper and deeper insights into the role of woman, not you know socially, domestically, and even occasionally on a deeper level. You know, say take the film Veronica Voss by Fassbinder, you know, and things like that. You you move from that point, uh, and then later, and then that is the very reason that I actually got into psychology in the first place oh. through the study of the women's studies. And so going into bookstores in the early 90s, uh, going over to the, the sections on feminism, picking out the best and reading it, later discovering that a lot of it is uh, bogus, but that's a whole different you know, journey. But instrumentally, when it comes to film criticism, be it, say, Alfred Hitchcock or Werner Herzog or whoever you're dealing with, um, it becomes very vital. Those women's studies, they have a point to make. The reason why I started to reject it or you know, start to discover the limitations of it was was a separate thread that has to do with their critiques of Freud and their attempts to critique the patriarchy and all of that. You know, and we could we could discuss that endlessly, and we have done. And that was then where I start to see flaws that they're taking things that uh, have a great legitimacy, a very deep legitimacy, and they're trying to skew it as if to back up an agenda. You know, but again, leaving that aside, not right now. The mainstream idea was to get on the inside of, of that movement's understanding, read the books, get to know the subject really, really well, how they see life, uh, how they see the role of the patriarchy and man's role in the world, and how they see their own, you know. So that was how it actually developed. And there was no particular, you know, direction to it. It was just a study, an interest. It wasn't controversial at all to me. These subjects were never controversial. They were just interesting. But then as the years turned and moved into the new millennium, oh, you know, then uh, 
this study branched out into many areas because what we're talking about is actually quite epic and has many threats. I didn't realize this at the time. I was just coming at it from a fairly, you know, Freudian point of view. Uh, The whole idea of sexual politics and what have you. And looking into all of that. But as time went by and I read more, and read more deeply on the subject, oh, just incredibly epic, uh, the epic dimensions of it. Meaning that you can come at the subject from, you know, anthropological point of view, the role of women. You can come at it from a uh, historical point of view. You can come at it from a very wide psychological point of view. Uh, people go to dragonmother.org and start reading the articles. You'll see that, that that's often uh, the platform I take, although there's others as well. You can also take it from a criminal point of view, amazingly. And then if you want, you can just move up to the modern age and deal with the dynamics that's been happening you know, throughout the 20th century. So there's more than one way to look at this. But the beginning was art. The beginning yeah. was simply... How are the artists of the 1800s portraying women? You know, there's a lot of, there's industrial revolution coming, gone, and you know, there was new roles. And so every epoch, as you move even into the 19th and 20th centuries, there's these new eras where these gender roles are very much uh, redefined, sometimes in a positive way, sometimes in a negative way. But can you believe it? It was back in 1989. And never a thing was written on it, and I kept it in the background while other things took priority. And it was only uh, very recently that then, you know, it came to the point where, okay, now is the time to (coughs) actually do something more formal on the subject. And that's when the books got written and then the website and, you know, various interviews. But we haven't done too many interviews on it. So again, thanks to you guys for giving me this opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, um, I don't even know if you know this, but this is this is how we ultimately connected because Sophie, uh, I introduced Sophie to Unslaved and we had gone on a road trip and listened to I don't, 25 hours worth of Unslaved episodes. And I've mentioned this before. And Sophie being, having her PhD in depth psychology uh, uh, with, with a somatic focus, um, she really loved all the episodes. And I would say all the Dragon Mother episodes, the adult, episode on adultism that you have, like really just like kind of like knocked her off her feet and really had a huge impact on her in, in regards to your analysis. And when she was going through some of her research for her dissertation uh, on touch, she came across stuff that aligned with a lot of the stuff that you were saying. And that's how that's how I first reached out to you. So um, it's really important work. Um, I want to, I guess, come back to the, the modern age in regards to you have all these different levels of feminism, like, and there's so much to talk about, but why... Do you think feminists, you know, attribute all the ills of of the world on man? Like it's a general question, but if you want to kind of dive into that a little bit, yeah, of course they do it for mostly duplicitous reasons. That's not to ever exonerate men and the 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 crime that man has perpetrated in many ways. <clears throat> but Western civilization, you know, like all civilizations, take time to mature and. Uh, like I said, when I studied in the early days, there were affronts. A lot of the feminists have correct analysis of what was going on. You think child labor is a good thing. You think that uh, being locked up in horrible prisons in those days, uh, rat infested, you know, and all the rest of the different uh, the factories, uh, the conditions 
But it's about how you go about remedying those things. <clears throat> man should critique woman, woman should critique man. That's how you do it. And then you offer uh, decent solutions. What's happened in the modern age to answer your question is that legitimate criticism and legitimate activist action <clears throat> from early feminists slowly uh, entwined itself with the basically, you know, to cut a long story short, a, a sort of a communistic, heavily left-wing socialistic <coughs> and ultimately unsustainable ideology. It's unsustainable because the whole of Marxism is, is uh, unsustainable and provably false. Top Marxists have admitted this. So that, in fact, that's why you have cultural Marxism. It had to morph from political Marxism. Well, that you know, a lot of people read that wrongly. It's a fail. You have your Herbert Marcuse's and others coming in later on in the modern age because the original precepts of Marxism and socialism in general failed miserably. So feminism failed. It, and, and it could have gone in a different direction. It was more respectful and so on. You know, but as the, as the different waves of feminism came along, it, it got less and less uh, uh, respectful. Uh, originally, the first wave of feminism was really no problem and was a legitimate social critique. But studded within that in the early days was a lot of nonsense as well. You know, John Stuart Mill, a famous philosopher, chiming in in his works on women. Uh, you know, and and uh, the danger there is, uh, and I hope we can see this part because it, it plays along in the entire question of womankind. Yeah. Any of the aberrations that you might observe in the criminal history of womankind or in the mother in the situation of a mother or bioenergetics as another way of coming at it you're right to mention that uh, I forgot to mention that, uh, that there's a whole bioenergetic approach to the role of the woman and the role of mother but any aberrations that you may find man is 80% responsible for it because it's his world that allows it it's his world that permits it it's his world that turns the blind eye so when you're critiquing the woman and, and the reality of the woman and whatever is in her psyche, it includes a critique of the male. Now, this is what you get. This is what you miss with other critiques, say Megatow or things like that. Mm -hmm. They are only looking at women or bitches. Women are gold diggers. Is that as far as you've got? How far do we need to go for you to even realize that man's complicity in this? And, and then when you do go further into that, you find out that this is a question of the types of masculinity and femininity more than it is a case of male and female. That's mm. just gender roles. That's just sex. That's just chromosomes. What we, where this journey will take you is into the whole story of psychology. That's why it fascinated me, you know, and that's why I pursued it all these years. So, it, therefore, it is not wrong to say that female and femininity are connected. But it's somewhat limited because men can be very feminine. And the more and more feminine a man come, becomes in his life or a society becomes, the more and more these aberrations of the female are permitted instead of curtailed. So running, so this thing runs on two wheels. There's the aberrations that one can you know, uh, track back to the female psyche and female character and female behavior and female temperament. But there's also the fact that the road has been paved so that those things have never been properly understood. Now, I'm the first one to be able to say that, see, when you start off on a thing like this, 
It is a matter of observation first. That must be clear, clarified. Forget the study. The study has already taken me the best part of 33 years or more. So we're, we're, we need to start with this because, it, you know, it, it really is. We're in a very teething situation with this study of the female psyche is with observation first. And delay the study aspect, you know, until a bit later, because observation is critical here because it will it confirm everything that, that critics like myself say. And then adding to that is that um, why it's taken so long for us in history to even get around to studying this is itself a fascinating study. Yeah. And it just it, it's because there's a sort of a national fantasy or uh, sort of dissociation at work in which we, the human race, imagines that everything about women is actually known already. Well, who told you that? The first steps haven't even been taken. Yet we have a fantasy in our head that there's nothing really to know. What you see is what you get. That is the, that's, that's the, you know, the stone in the shoe that stops you climbing the mountain. No. The female psyche is a very intriguing and complex and deep thing. And the human race and man in general hasn't the faintest idea where to start. And he doesn't start because he has this, uh, you know, level of dissociation. And then, of course, a woman is the least interested in her psyche than anybody on earth. The woman herself has no interest in their psyche. That doesn't mean that women don't wear white coats and get into the subject of psychology. That's not what I said. Women are not interested in female psychology. And you have to dig deep to find anyone who even mentions it, whether they be man or woman. So then this leaves us in a very teething situation. And so my work was to gather all of this, the anthropological, the historical, right, the bioenergetic, uh, the criminal, whatever way you want to look at it, the artistic, and to bring it all together as a sort of a starting place with a very much in mind that we're in a starting place. But political feminism went haywire, went wrong. Earlier feminists rejected because it went wrong by aligning itself so vehemently with the, the politics of socialism. There was really no need for that to happen at all. The critique could have continued and been very legitimate and, you know, I think would have done a lot more. Uh, it would have been better. It would have it would actually, you know, it would have been a stronger thing and it wouldn't have polarized. We've just seen over the whole... Trump administration issue there that, you know, the left has polarized. They're talking one thing about bringing together and not polarizing, and yet everything that they do is to polarize. And yet we're still kind of not even aware of that. Well, feminism is no different. It talks like angels, but it actually acts like demons. Mm. Um, why do you think men, more modern men, has a general disassociation to, to look into the female psyche? It's the same reason that women do, and that's to do with a thing called matrophobia. Uh, you know, as I said, we're in the teething situation, so just go around and ask how many you know people have ever heard of that term. It would be a classic proof of what I'm talking about. What? what, what? So man has it, and girls have it. Jung called it the Electra complex for girls, and Freud called it the Oedipus complex. Uh, and it's to do with the parenting, right? But since the mother is the dominant parent, Whoever pointed out that in both those complexes, Electra complex and Oedipus complex, it really focuses on the mother, where the father is there, but he's a secondary character. So this is where it becomes more classically psychological now, right? Yeah. Because in childhood, 
the dynamics between the mother and the child creates these these defenses <clears throat> that you're talking about. And they only get more and more reinforced. <coughs> and then uh, in the background, in, in culture in general, there's the feminization I spoke of. So yes, we if uh, mothers and fathers have brought up their children to be more alpha, be more masculine, then probably we would have made a lot more progress. But the conditions of adultism, that's the name of the second book, uh, prevent that. Uh, tying us up in a lot of other neurosis and complexes and syndromes you see that uh, dominate the mind, dominate psychiatry. We would run to get those fixed. Uh, Reich would have said it this way. William Reich would have said it this way. The armored person. And you get armored first via the, 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 the kind of touch that you experience from a mother. But that armored person is his, his uh, attention to his problem is shielded by the very arming that he's got. That's what's classic Reichian. I'm not making that up. The, the, the pathological person cannot see or even detect that he is pathological. This is one of the great Gordian knots. You know, uh, uh, the healthy person would be the only one to be able to look into the dynamics of unhealth. But since the whole world is armored, the Western world, men, even women, right, in different ways. And fat, by the way, obesity is also a form of armoring. So it's very, very uh, predominant in our world right now. But these uh, pathological neurotic syndromes actually carry with it a kind of, uh, it's like a mosquito biting you. It has an anesthetic that prevents you even feeling the wound. So the more pathological you are, the less and less and less. You are the one who even knows. In fact, you think you're completely normal and that everybody else is pathological. And of course, this is one of the great then difficulties in psychology is to make the neurotic person realize that they need help or that there's something wrong with them. And the more and more people that are like them, then you, you, you're wasting your time. How can anybody who's been normalized and culturized uh, to an abnormal world uh, ever imagine that they, there's something wrong with their world? So then this brings up problems, you know, even in the conspiracy movement and in other subjects, we find this as well. How do you waken up the unawakened? And, you know, it may be actually impossible to do so. Yeah. Michael, you, you talk about, you know, in your work and in your books, these concepts, dragon mother and the terrible mother. And on first glance, one would think dragon mother is would be like, oh, the dragon. But that's not the case, right? Dragon mother isn't the the terrible mother. Can you talk about those terms just a little bit? Yeah, well, remember I said earlier on that there was a sort of a historical slash anthropological tie-in to all of this? There is. And you can start back in the Neolithic with this. And that's what that word really alludes to. It's coming out of the Jungian, Irish Newman tradition. Where my book is actually the first book, Dragon Mother, is an homage to the work of Irish Newman, the Jungian. You see, it was written uh, to bring out the central facts in his last book. He died before it was published and has been on the shelf ever since. So mine is the first work to honor his work, his posthumous book. Uh, and that book was called The Child. So along with that book and the other books he wrote when he was alive, my focus was to bring that out in the term dragon, right? And it's just, it's a neutral term that actually refers to the mother and to the encircling uh, 
symbolism. And that can just be a circle or a precinct um, or, or, or a dragon or a serpent. And it's replete in mythology, isn't it? So that has always been used symbolically in alchemy and in other things as to be a protective, encircling intelligence <clears throat> that uh, not only encircles and protects the ego germ, but is a mediator for what is, you know, in the more of the uh, expansive pleroma around it. So it's permeable, right? It, it protects, but it also has to transmit. So it has this extraordinary property. Um, so the dragon mother is really that entity then who gives birth. This is why there's a priority there. Uh, and that can go to a woman's head culturally, that they are akin to the gods. They are. But it's, again, how, how an individual woman or even a culture will, will uh, uh, conceive of that. That can go wrong. And anthropologically, it did go wrong when women actually, in uh, mass, were so, had such a feeling of exaltation. You know, this is back in ancient history that uh, things went wildly wrong there and caused them the reaction of the male world and what all the feminists know as the great uh, rise of patriarchy. Nobody's ever explained why this thing should suddenly happen or why, in their idea, horsemen should just be riding across the steps uh, and descending upon cultures and wiping out the women. I'd like to have, could you at least fill in a blank why that might have yeah. happened in all these different tribes throughout the whole of Europe? Yeah, that was my next the question. Deal. So I'd love, I'd love to yeah. for you to get into that. Well, go ahead. You were gonna ask. I, I said that was that was my next question. I'd love for you to get into why was the the, the rise of the patriarchy. Well, in short, uh, and I've dealt with this in a multiplicity of you know we even did it in the auto rank because auto rank the psychologist secretary of Freud for twenty two years was instrumental. He wrote a book called The Trauma of Birth, and it was one of the books I read. You know, in this greater study, right. Well, for goodness sake, don't pick up that book ever because it, it just opens hundreds of different gates to his other works and to his unique understanding of the whole of history and psychology. But I did it. I followed all the threads. And basically he and a, about half a dozen other scholars of the top level, Jean Marcal, the great Celtic scholar, uh, oh, many others, mention a time and, you know, the dates aren't really fixed here because there's many possible dates for this. And that's a whole separate subject. And I do deal with that within a work I've got on Enslaved called The Monstrous Feminine. And we look briefly into that whole question of dates. But to me, it's still an open question of when this happened. But somewhere around maybe before the 8th century BC, or the 8th millennium BC, sorry, uh, There was a moment where, according to Rank and people like that, where a great deception took place in which women lied to them to the males in the tribe about the origin of children. And it turns out in many, many cultures, man didn't even have a faintest idea about his role <clears throat> in conception till quite late in history. You know, and the people who've tracked this. 
And that in itself is a little bit peculiar because another voice would say, well, wait a minute, they must have known from watching animal behavior. Yeah, but the thing is that all animals give birth very, very fast. The gestation period and the birthing period is within days or weeks. Man's is, you know, 270 days, you know, nine months, very, very long. So no, it wasn't automatically understood. And the ones who, who first understood that it is because, you know, of the male were the women. They were the ones who worked it out. And the image in mythology that we know of the evil grandmother, the evil witch, the old hag, that refers to this, by the way. I don't mm. care if you find it in Red Riding Hood or, in, you know, Macbeth or any other uh, source. The whole idea of an old evil witch comes from exactly what we're talking about, as does many motifs, you know, would take too long to get into. But the upshot was that later when the man found out that they'd been deceived, uh, they realized this dynamic, that the younger women were influenced by the older woman to perpetuate this lie. This is what came out of history. It's all been covered up. And so the older women, in order to gain a female superiority, formed themselves into not a matriarchy, which is the big lie. And feminists have even proved that that's a lie that holds no water. But a gynocracy, almost like a secret society, I refer to them as a female Illuminati, because that's essentially what they were. A group of women who passed down this lie of paternity. And the lie of paternity was that man of the, tri- the men of the tribe are not the fathers of any offspring, but it's the gods. And that the woman then had was endowed specially. You see how this fits with today, right? The entitlement factors of that this hasn't gone away by any means. It's what's known as atavistic uh, racial memory. And this lie of paternity sustained itself for centuries, if not millennia. Because as I say, yeah, you can be fooled on this matter. And the ones that you're turning to to tell you the truth about it are giving you this fiction. And so the whole story of ancestors, uh, certain tribes were told, certain men were told, no, you're, uh, oh, this happened when the males noticed that some of their children looked like them. And there was a danger now that they'd find out that they had something to do with conception. Then the women said, no, no, they don't look like you, chump. They look like your ancestors, your grandfathers, whose spirits came to us and impregnated us. This is where the story of the dove, uh, uh, holy wind, a sacred stone, uh, sitting on a particular rock at a particular place, and a plethora of other, uh, a beam of light. Even though, like the, the miraculous the birth, Jesus, like the birth yeah. of Jesus, would this come That's into it. this category as well? Yeah. The amazing thing is that that story of the virgin in the Bible yeah. and the immaculate conception is an iteration of what I'm talking about. Can you believe it? Yeah. And that is the little piece of evidence, forensic evidence in the Bible there that harkens back to this anthropological lie of paternity. So as long as the men were uh, befuddled and, 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 and lied to and betrayed, the woman had a tremendous superiority complex. The hags are the ones who knew the secret and kept passing it on to new mothers who then went along with it. If and when a male saw that his son was almost a duplicate of himself, the, the, he was then told that it's not you, it is your ancestors who came to me in a dream, who came in a, a great wind. Uh, 
And that, that is, again, replete in mythology. Or even a sacred animal. They had 101 ways of getting out of the, uh, the truth of it, and we bought it. And then, of course, moving up to the crisis, stepping over a lot of ground. Finally, when men realize that they've been lied to, obviously there's a counterpointing, right, countervailing uh, demotion of the woman out of this goddess status. So atavistically, in the New Age movement, the goddess um, syndrome was, as we know, obviously, resurrected. Just as spuriously as ever before, but we had it. Because women have it atavistically. For thousands of years, they enjoyed that status and they want it back. If you want to understand modern times, you've got to understand ancient times. So, but the rise of patriarchy in the form of, say, priests, warriors, monks, kings, became more vehement and anti-feminine for a reason, as a retaliation of the great lie of paternity. So what, two things happened. Well, many things happened, but two things that jumped to mind are important. One is that women now would, uh, would, would suffer a much lower status, while male priests took over the role of the women who had been deified. So hence the robes, many of the rites, which so many scholars have noticed are very feminine, holy mother church, and all the rest of it. Look at the Pope. Well, all of that is feminine, obviously, because the males now said, we're going to strip you of your power but we recognize that there is power there. We're going to adopt a lot of your rights. And so this is one reason why then the male priesthierarchies have so much of this female symbolism. It was taken from them. But it was taken from them in a way that the feminist doesn't want you to know about. The feminist will always mention the brutality and the violence and the aggression of the male, but never the reasons why. This constitutes in the, you know, the criminal history of womankind that's been covered up, and my work is the first to go into it. So. And the second thing of importance was the change in the relationship between the father and the son. In the days when the lie was abroad, well, a father's relationship with his son was, was hardly that. There was no father-son relationship except in the most, you know, sort of light way. Oh, these are just children born from the ancestors. You know, uh, they matter. We're going to protect them. But there was no emotional bonding. So for millennia, Right, the women's lie to the male prevented something absolutely extraordinarily important from actually taking place, and that is a emotional connection between father and son. Now, although at a given point in history, well, it'll be our prehistory, that that started to change, and there was this bond. Historically speaking, it's too late. Mm. Oh yes. And so where we are now, or where we found ourselves as, you know, uh, the modern age opened or the historical age is open, there's already an impairment in something that should have been fundamental. Now, Sigmund Freud, one of, the, one of the proofs of this, the piece of evidence I would recommend, is his book, Totem and Taboo. You can just look it up, a description of it online. And although he got it <clears throat> very uh, wrong, I mean, there's a, you know, severe missing pieces. The general thrust of that book is about what we're talking about, in which the sons of a village, as he portrays it, rebel against the king father patriarch and actually kill him. You know, you get this in your Shakespearean yeah. things later on. But in the original telling, the sons of the tribe, in an act of envy and also fear of the patriarch that he might kill us, 
We kill him. And what Freud failed to see is that this is all done at the behest of the mother. That's the part he leaves out. And clever psychologists are not clever, but later psychologists sort of amended this. But the idea of the sons rebelling against their father shows that there was no emotional bond. That's the one thing that you know can be discerned. You do this because the father is not your father. He's just this patriarch and king. So let's get rid of him. And so this is reprised again in the story of Mordred and King Arthur, who hates his uh, uncle or whatever it is, you know, uh, Arthur, and can just dispatch him anytime he feels like there's no emotional bond because he is the son of Morgan Le Fay. And she's poisoned his mind against the king because this is all hearkening back at shades of what we're talking about, that early boys didn't even know that their fathers were uh, the loyal. They knew they were the king and chieftain, but they had no emotional bond. And so what did this breed? Tremendous intrigue. What did that breed? The loss of the greatest leaders our world could ever have known, that history could have known. Because all those patriarchs, by not being really adored in a true emotional way by their sons, in fact, the sons, like Mordred, would would conspire and and seek to overthrow and even murder their, their, their fathers, what did that do for society? It deprived them of the strong leaders. So this is where the chivalric male comes in, what I call the chivalric male. As I said, there's an anthropological origin of all of this, and that's what we're explaining right now. There's still chivalric men walking around the world everywhere you look. They're, this creature has not died away, but here's its origin. In a, you, How can you have what is called civilization? This is part of my great critique of civilization. How can you dare use that word for something that's uh, origins are so weak? that thanks to the lie of paternity distributed by women, male children could, could kill their, the leaders of the tribe as if it was nothing. Because they're psychopaths on that level. They have no real affiliation apart from a more ritualistic one, you know, as people bow and scrape to a leader, but inwardly they're cursing him. And this yeah. is brought out in innumerable, innumerable actual myths of our world, proving the point. So the lie of paternity weakened the bond in tribes between the sons and the fathers. Now, as I say, later there was an improvement in this, and we have what we have today, which is the father-son bond, right? But this is a new thing in history and have been undermined at the, in, the, in the infancy of civilization. And to me, after looking at all of this, I don't believe in civilization. I think what we've got is a pathetic, uh, tawdry, derivative version of a, of a civilization that we can only imagine when the real patriarchs, who, if, they, if they're born with their own sons, had been as firm, really true, and all, you know, you saw your own spirit in the eyes of your son, and vice versa, and there was real respect from the son to the father we would have what is called real civilization, which can only be dreamed of today. Yeah. So there's there's many consequences of this. Uh, those were just two, you know. Uh, uh, but then, of course, yeah, now we move to history. We move up to the, 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 the cries of woman, the protestations about her lower status are all due to her own ancestors. It's nothing to do with what men. Men were just doing a police action, retaliating against something that was so foul. And so what we call civilization with a small c began when women were housed in precincts 
right? City-states began, they say the hunter-gatherers moved and they wanted to have settlements. They wanted settlements to keep an eye on the women because the moment that the back was turned, they had been lying through their teeth about, you know, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, setting themselves up as goddesses. So the settlement was for that the, to limit the role of the hag, to make sure that the, the younger women stayed loyal and true to their men and were indeed from that point on treated more as possessions than anything, not entirely. But the general idea was now that these are criminals, these are betrayers, these are cosmic liars. Yeah. And they will, from this moment on, you know, uh, deserve to be treated as chattel, except for exceptional women and all of that. But in general, this is where our history begins then, with women with a secondary status. So, and, you know, what could take it from there? So just like festers this innate distrust of women. Right. Yeah. yeah. I want I want to highlight something and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael. You mentioned an atavistic element to the feminine. Um, is there a similar one um for for men in terms of the, like through time because they were robbed of this emotional bond that impacts their psychology and their behavior, you know, today in in a similar way, but and also the, the flip side of that is like would the woman have toxically bonded with the son as the husband? Right in, in in the attempt to cut off the the king. All true. All of these things were so devastating. Remember, the feminists are right to say that many men rose up and were categorically anti-woman. This is reflected in the War of the Gods, where there's always troublesome relationships between, say, Zeus and Jupiter and the, the main gods with their female counterpoints. Hera, Aphrodite are all venomous creatures. They're all looking for power. And so, you, so everything I'm saying can be, you know, qualified by looking into the mythologies and the incredible. And then, of course, you have the evil goddesses as well. Your Medeas and, uh, you know, the goddess of the underworld and uh, uh, Nat and Astarte and Semiramis and all of this who have very dark sides. So a lot of, a lot of things change, you know, as, as because of these, because of this lie. Uh, strangely, uh, you see, one could also mention the importance of uh, dreams here, believe it or not. It actually ties in. Because when the women use the ruse that your child looks like you because he's a descendant of, the, of your ancestors who came to me in a cloud or a wind or a great storm, the women would also say that they often came to them in dreams, that they got impregnated you know, in a dream where they dreamed of a sacred animal or whatever. That, so a lot of things are being created in a bogus way, right? But this had enormous importance because, you see, in ancient times, dreams were monumentally important in a way that we couldn't even comprehend today. And one of the reasons was because ancient man would dream of the dead. Say somebody who was beloved in the tribe died. Months later, somebody such and such, you know, in the or more than one, are dreaming, as we do today, of that deceased person. Now, this wasn't taken the way we do today, as just like matter of fact. This was absolutely horrific. This was absolutely august to anyone, you know, who was in a tribal situation. They'd wake up and say, I just dreamed of my dead uncle or the dead king. How is this possible? Well, to cut a long story short, they believed they were visited by the king. 
They mm. believed that those were actual visitations. And whatever was then communicated to them in that dream, they had to physically act out in life. Otherwise, the dream was not fulfilled. And so what we call the origins of mythology, and actually storytelling came of this as well, became that you the shaman, everything we know about what, and I'm talking here about authentic shamanism, was dream-based. You remember the aboriginals were their dream time? Yep. Because now the leaders and elders of the, of the village and the tribe would focus on their dreams. And if something was said, they tried to enact it as the best of their ability. But because it's almost impossible to completely enact any dream, uh, you know, whether it was hunting an animal or climbing to a high place or redirecting the river or, you know, whatever the image might have been, was quite difficult. There had to be a surplus uh, because the act wouldn't, no matter how you contrived it, the act was just simply impossible because of these descriptions. So that's when storytelling occurred to compensate for that which was the dream, but maybe not fulfilled. And so all the all of our panoply of uh, you know mythologies and stories of which it's replete, uh, and, and this is all of it, all the mythologies, I don't care how it snowballed later on into the stories of King Arthur and magical and mystical events and, you know, all sorts of things can be accounted for here as the hero waking up <coughs> saying, I've been directed in my dream to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to meet a sacred animal who will guide me. I'm going off on my walkabout to fulfill this dream. But obviously, no matter how much, there'll always be something in the dream that isn't quite fulfilled. And therefore, as time went by, then the recounting of the dream, including the physical exploits, became what we know as storytelling. And look how important that has impacted. So the world of fiction, the world of science fiction, the world of imagination, right? But it all comes out of the of this relationship with dreams in which when, when you saw a dead person, you believed that the dead were talking to you. It wasn't a dream. It was something that was really, really happening. And therefore, your entire waking life, your entire religious life, it, it was was it was deeply imbued. So, when they'd wake up, anything that they would not were not doing, the dream was what was guiding their hands. Whether it was as simple as cooking or going on the hunt or, you know, carving a, an idol, a, a figurine, holy worship, which later became the religions of the world. All of this was motivated by the dreams and the intercession of the dead. It was all based in the cult of the dead. And so in Celtic Ireland, you get the, you know, the idea of the skull and all of this. And a lot of this has been forgotten and just ironed out so we forget about it. You know, But the women were clever enough to, to take this up and use it. And man believed it because he was, in fact, having these experiences in the dream and could easily believe that these ancestors were coming back to impregnate the women of the tribe and give them their offspring, which means what? that the offspring are immaculately conceived and are divine. All the children are from the ancestors. And that let me make it even more clear. The children are the ancestors. The child born, especially if you happen to look like an ancestor, that was an added cherry on the top, but all children are the rebirth of your ancestors. They're coming back, just like they come back in dreams. They can come back in physical form. So then you can imagine, that's why I said earlier, it's very difficult for us to conceive this. 
But this is where then the special child was exalted. Because if my ancestor, who is the wisest one of our tribe for hundreds of years, can come back and that child there, little Johnny, then that's the ancestor. He's there and brings with him the, you know, the, the, the magic, mm. brings with him the special gifts. And so this is where then, you know, you get your Apollo and your Adonis and your Jesus and your Arthur and your Horus, the special child, the golden one. It's all coming out of this. So this leads in many, many directions. Very, 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 very interesting. That's for sure. Um, yeah. I want to kind of get into how this affects us today. So I'm going to share this quote from John Neal, who you referenced earlier. Whatever the mother experiences during her pregnancy, for instance, anxiety, physical discomfort, hormonal, bodily, and emotional flux, etc., the unborn child will absorb as if it were its own. So how does the role of female psychology um, impact men today? Well, see, the, the role of the woman as custodian, as the dragon mother, is to masculinize her child, both to masculinize the girl and masculinize the male. And all that means is to make them into alphas, to make them independent to have their heads in the clouds, but their feet on the ground. For an average woman today, it is to breed my children, bring them up moral, bring them up ethical, bring them up strong, and bring them up assertive. That's all gone haywired. Well, you know, that's the problem. But that's what it is. And then man says, I will make society comfortable for you to do that. I will continue working like a, a bilio, I will build the bridges, I will build the infrastructure, I will give you these perks and cushions and pillows and whatever you need, because you are raising my children, that's the deal. Now, why anybody would want to change that or think of that as abnormal? I mean, you're raising the children. But how can you raise them if you are self-amoral, not even immoral, but amoral, or that because of atavistic programming, which is through the magazines and the women's uh, palava? Uh, skews women right from the very beginning and makes them highly neurotic and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, that's at our end here where we have to start with it all. But if that woman is in completely neurotic situation, then why is she breeding? She, she, there's no way that she can bring up those children ethically, moral, and strong and masculine. It's not going to happen, which then again is a, you know, uh, undermines whatever kind of civilizations we have. And that's what's been going on. So this is where again psychology comes to bear. But the but the so the what walking around today calling itself male on closer psychological inspection is anything but that. One, he's armored, and that makes him into what I happen to just call a chivalric male. And that's not too much of a compliment in there, by the way. Uh, you know, and more and more, but despite this body armoring that makes him look like, you know, with a six-pack and the broad shoulders and all of that, he's really feminine. And he's in orbit around the female will. Mm -hmm. But the female will is mostly a pestilential thing that disengaged itself from reality centuries ago. It's been propped up by the male infrastructure, but it's, it's, it's again, been uh, you know, contaminated from within because of this atavistic programming. And because we're not a psychological culture or nowhere near it, we don't even know how to patch it up. We don't know how to go in there and fix it. And so the male then is complicit in this regard and in other regards as well. 
Uh, he's, he's handicapped. He doesn't even know where to start. But he has this fictional idea that he knows all there is to know about women. And this is something that I think, you know, until that's removed, until you start with a blank canvas and say, no, we don't know anything, we got to start there. And you can start with mother if you want, you know, whatever angle you want. And as I say, just make it a case of observation. That's crucial. Rather than a specific study, you know, to jump into. I provided that if you want. Uh, <clears throat> you know, that's the value there. But again, just simple observation is the best way to start. What is um, the difference between, I guess, a masculinized woman and a feminized woman and vice versa? Yeah, I go into that in Dragon Mother, you see, because these are the types we're talking about. Yeah. yeah, the masculine woman is generally a dragon mother, not a terrible mother. The terrible mother is the one who goes wrong and then brings in a power structure in which she, you know she needs that child as a crutch. She needs that child as a, a, as a toy. Uh, it's all about her. She's self-absorbed. She's you know, psychologically, uh, constitutionally inferior. But you can breed, right? No matter how dumb you are and backward and immoral and amoral, you can still breed, right? Courtesy of the body. And that's what you, you see all around you. The masculine woman takes on the masculine traits and doesn't really approach things from that point of view. She's much more interested in, the, in preserving the identity of her child and allowing it to flourish and making then the home life, you know, uh, so that that will occur. And so her choices and who she even breeds with, very, very different. And she's not willing to breed, you know, these uh, sort of feminized or ultra-feminized men. That's not to say that she doesn't awaken them to their artistic side naturally. That's very important. And even very, very masculine men have that awakened within them. So this would be somebody who deals with their children as a human-to-human level rather than mother-to-child, which is actually a very foul thing. And that's what the Oedipus complex of Freud was to try and describe. It's just a description of an aberrant parenting and the electric complex. And so my work focuses a lot on the electric complex because then it brings up this extraordinary dynamic of matrophobia yeah. and how that affects. People can translate what I'm saying to the male, but in terms of a daughter, a young girl, matrophobia means exactly what it says, hatred or fear of the mother. And it's the fear of the terrible mother. So the dragon mother does not awaken fear in her child. And works to allay any such dynamic, whereas the terrible mother gets off on it. It's the reason she breeds. She needs to get out her own hatreds, her own you know neuro- neurosis on her with her parents. On and the best way to do that is to breed yourself. One, you can get the return to the level of a you know infant in your own mind, which is the monster. Like I said, just observe the world. You get to go back progressively to live as a child yourself because the reality principle as you meet it when you're moving into your 20s is so frightful for these feminized types that they can't face it. So the best thing to do is breed and then you're surrounded in the whole world of domesticity so you can avoid the reality principle. Oh, that's just great for our civilization, right? And you bring up children who will remain infantile. So it's a murky and dirty dynamic. But the one thing is that in the electric complex, there is a, and this is quite elaborate, so we couldn't go into it here, but in the books, I clearly explain it, how this uh, kind of fear of the mother or whatever will develop into an actual hatred of the mother and everything she represents. But as a child, because you're weak and vulnerable and dependent, 
You cannot face within yourself that emotion. So it gets repressed. And the agent of repression is known as the superego. But also we have a split brain. So there's even neuroscience involved in this because that hatred would so undermine you as a being that we've even divided our brain. Armoring is exactly this. Armoring, the genesis of armoring is hatred of the, of the parent. Matrophobia. Uh, and uh, and uh, on some levels, the mothers know this. And their, their touch will also convey this and be instrumental to this. But the upshot is that girls grow up with their bulimias and their anorexias and breakouts and bad eyesight and all sorts of other things as, as the body uh, processes this hatred, right? But they're not consciously aware of it. And in that state, they go on to interact with the world. And this is where the male hatred comes from, because also in order to deflect their animosity and antagonism towards the mother, what is the easiest cop-out that anyone can Imagine you just blame it on the male who takes it on the chin because he's an idiot, doesn't understand what is going on. And so this dynamic then is the classic vicious cycle that's gone on over and over again. doesn't exonerate men for their crimes, but I'm trying to get to a lower strata here that shows you how this whole rotten dynamic started. And the, and the, and the mother is exonerated, if not exalted, as we go until one snaps out of it and wakes up and finds out what's going on. So and now that women's movements have moved into this more uh, extremist and militant uh, movements all over the world, you can see then the danger in that. It's ramping up that gynocratic power, and it could bring about the end of civilization. And it actually is doing so. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to see it in the New Age community, too, with this like priestess, goddess, pussy power, et cetera, et cetera, that you see all over the place. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm all for female empowerment, but the the way it's being done is is really interesting. And it relates a lot to what you've been talking about today. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So this matrophobia, then, you see, is a, is a kind of a, a killer, a silent killer within the girl. She's fighting it, but she's fighting to express it which happens in the body illnesses. And she's expressing it in her uh, ire and hyper-competitiveness against men, completely meaningless uh, course to take. And she is also repressing it. It doesn't exist. Hence, the cosmetics, right? The cover-up involves even physical covering up. But of course, my interest is more the psychological. You build defenses, very thick defenses against that anger. Now, there's one other syndrome that I always bring to bear in this. There's many, but this is we're dealing with just the fundamentals here. And that is at some point when the superego gets developed, it brings to bear a particular syndrome that is really, really the root of why things are going wrong everywhere you look, in the individual family or on the social level. And that is called the identification with the object of your hate. And it means exactly what it says. In the tyrannous action of a terrible mother, although vile, although it is reconfiguring your psyche and your biopsyche of that girl, tearing up her own individuality, suppressing her self-expression to pathological degrees, and all the rest of it. Strangely, because it is power and it is tyrannical, and I refer to it as the Medusan power, there's a part of the brain or the part of the mind, which is the superego, that starts to identify with that power. 
Therefore, the terrible mother's poison is carried on. And the person who's the victim actually identifies with the power that's wielded by their most hate, you know, hated nemesis, which means that simply you become the dragon, right? He who fights too long against dragons becomes a dragon. And so the woman then transforms herself, the young girl, if she doesn't have any psychological insight into any of this, which my work is hopefully to change that dynamic. Uh, but if they don't, then of course, it's inevitable that they will turn into terrible mothers themselves. Because secretly, although there's an underlying repulsion against being oppressed, because it is a power, the disempowered person can, as a way out, as a way of identifying, see, it's all about lowering anxiety. Because the reality principle, you can't function in it if there's this very you know, types of uh, disabling anxiety. So you have to lower it in order to get on with living a life. Mm. And the way to do it then, you can't carry around this inner dragon fight, as I call it. So in order to lessen the anxiety of this dragon fight, you identify with the enemy. And in a strange dynamic, which you know is very, very difficult to grasp, that does, in fact, do the trick temporarily. And the girl can grow up, 13, 14, super ambitious, you know, knows what she wants, going into the world, not dealing with the psychology, uh, not understanding the roots of her own psyche, and plunging into the world to lose herself in the world. Now, that world has been built and provided by men, by the way. So they use it then as this area to, you know, extrovertly go into it and become extremely busy. Not just breeding, as we've already talked about, but in all the nonsense. They control 80% of the, of the spending wealth, 80% of the credit card you know, expenditures, and all the rest of it. Just look through, go through a mall and, and look what's dedicated to women as opposed to males. And all the rest of it. The cosmetics, the magazines, the fashion, all of these things. And they're hiding out in that light. But, but, <clears throat> but the, all of the cosmetic culture, the facade of it, disguises matrophobia. And only when you discover that fact can you understand a lot of the imagery that shows up. You know, in that uh, it's a separate subject we probably can't explore here. But the very imagery of it is there to disguise. You'd be amazed. Like, for instance, I'll give you a couple of examples. Look at how frequent, and I show this in the different videos that I've done and programs on this, the Medusa image, the blood-soaked vampire woman, right? You know, you've seen it with the fangs and the, the blood all over it and other bizarre imagery that nobody could understand, like these Abramoviches and all the rest of it. Yeah. All of that can be decoded by what I'm saying. It's a little keyhole into something that is going on between mother and daughter. And these advertisers and all have just picked up on it. They know what we don't know, right? And they present this image to awaken atavistic memories of superiority, of divinity, of exaltation, of them being special. So now do you understand why all the halos are appearing in, in the media, especially around these Beyonce's and Lady Gaga's and what have you? The, uh, this, this sort of iconic symbolism and imagery, the sacerdotal female, the whole thing. But then there's this vampiristic, you know, mm -hmm. Medusan aspect always thrown in, not just in advertising, but in movies as well. Yeah. 
all can be explained by what's going on in the female psyche. So as I said, it takes on extraordinary, you know. And then back to your question, is the newborn child absorbing all of this in utero? Yeah, they are. So uh, this was known as the semiotic phase, in which uh, it's pre-symbolic, before the kind of communications of alphabets and language and linear kind of uh, understandings come about. There's this more amorphous, surreal language, actually, <clears throat> which is the language by which the child, in this unconscious, pre-conscious state, communicates with the psyche of the mother. Now, most women know nothing about this, so they're not even aware of it, but uh, a few are. And it's at this extremely important you know, state where the building blocks of later mentation are laid. And if, goes without saying now, that if that woman who's breeding that child and has that child in its womb has male hatred up the kazoo, has mother hatred, and all the syndromes we've been sort of sketching here, in her psyche. Uh, what do you think that's going to do for the psyche of that child? Could that be the reason why there's so many metrosexual men, so many gays, so many queers, so many men-hating men? I think it is. The, the, <clears throat> the transmittance of this inner dialogue of the female, her inner narrative, is undoubtedly in the semiotic phase communicated to the, to, the, to the fetus that then grows to infancy and, uh, as many psychologists have pointed out, affects even the biology of the child, right? which yeah. would then lead us to the whole gender question of this gender fluidity. Where's that coming from as a, as a phenomenon? But another uh, syndrome, and there's many, but political correctness. There wouldn't even be the phenomena of political correctness in our world without women. They invented it. Man would never, not even a feminized man would have even dreamed it, you see. So this immediately takes on then these social dimensions as well. Uh, a lunatic way to come across as super nice, super unoffensive, because there is a war going on within the woman in terms of her matrophobia. And to cover that up, you have to have these big, you know, facades, these big Prozac smiles. And they've now institutionalized it. So nobody speaks back. Nobody talks up. Everybody has to be non-offensive. And on and on it goes. But where's that all rooted? You see, why would one want to be that way? And therefore, you have this ultra-politically correct world because that's to keep the sanitized marzipan front that, is, that the woman is desperate to maintain. The whole, uh, their, their whole efforts for social justice and all of this, I explain this all in the articles, is totally bogus. They're not in the slightest bit interested in inequality and the, and the poor and the downtrodden. That's all hysterical and schizoid facades to cover up what's really going on in their deeper psyche. And the fact that no psychologist, trained psychologist, is standing up to point out even the rudiments of this is one of the great tragedies of the modern world. Because like, as I said, the perpetrator can do what they want. Why is it being allowed? Why is it being permitted? And so a study of the media and its images and advertisements and what have you, the cosmetics industry, the names of cosmetics, the looks, the leopard skins, the snake skins, and, you know, oh, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe it gets so deep. The skulls, the horrendously necrophilous uh, stuff that's becoming more and more. Because as this atavistic stuff comes to the surface in the women's world, 
the image gets imagery gets darker and darker and darker. Yeah. You know, and so, so yeah, you can approach it from even the media point of view, actually. It's a very, very important keyhole into what we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, there's a few things I want to comment on that uh, correlate to what you're saying. Even from a German new medicine standpoint, there are people, there are critics of, of GNM that will be like, well, how can a, a baby or how can a child get cancer? But again, if you're looking at this from what is the state of 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 the mother, you know, d- during the the in utero phases, or even in the first few years of life, you talk about mother hatred. You talk about male hatred. How about self hatred? You know, and then what impact that has on the child to let's say have a self devaluation conflict early on in life that may that's really intense that may lead to a diagnosis of cancer or some other uh, disease. So you know, these we're organisms at the end of the day, and we go through survival adaptations, whether it's in the womb or whether it's in the first few years of life that are going to impact how our biology functions. So all of this, you know, relates and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. That's right. See, Freud did not deal with that semiotic level. He starts the Oedipus complex around two years of old and then takes it from there. And everything he has to say is very accurate. But his secretary, Otto Rank, discovered that, no, there's an earlier period, which you're talking about, where the woman, the mother, has complete control from the moment of conception to these, to the ending of the uh, semiotic. <clears throat> this was confirmed later on even by feminists. They begrudgingly accepted a lot of this, taking great leaves out of uh, the work of Rank. And one of these was uh, the great feminist, Julia Kristeva, who endorsed all of this. And so in this formative period, that's where the building blocks are laid. And if the mother is autophobic, hates herself, hates being a woman, hates her own femininity, or has this uh, deep matrophobia, which, which is the case, then that breeding, that act of breeding is already an act of violence. As I say, she may be even semi-consciously having this child in order to escape the reality principle, in order to process her own mother hate by reliving it, right? Mother, child. Yeah, but mother, child. The daughter goes on to have her own child to replay the matrophobia. Not necessarily in an evil way. It can turn evil, but she's replaying it. But you don't do that at the cost of another soul. Sorry, it's amoral from the beginning. What you do is you go back to mama and you deal with it. You deal with mom, one-to-one. And you go to therapy and you find out and you read the, the, you know, the ones to read. And you deal with that inside yourself and you exercise it within yourself so that you're a whole human being walking around. That's the masculine way. That's what masculinity is. It's the desire to overcome the limitations within yourself, to never say die, and to know that you're a guest in this world and must leave it in a better state than when you found it. Well, this doesn't occur to any of the feminized types. They're here to have fun. They're hedonists. They're sensationalists. They're episodics. And in that action if it feels right for them to breed in order to relive right for their own narcissistic purposes then you have become a terrible mother there's no there's no way out of it and then expect your daughter to be a rebel expect there's going to be very very great difficulty and you can wear all the ribbons and the hair that you want and imagine that women are you know sugar and spice and all that's nice as much as you want in the culture perpetrate you know permeate these ideas pervade these ideas it's not going to work and it isn't working look at them now Women are overweight, like you can't believe, because of the sadness within. So the armoring, by the way, just to define it, is not just armoring against external phenomena. 
That's, that was what Reich said. But he also mentioned that arming serves the other purpose of blocking legitimate emotion from within. It sits near the surface. So it's a dual-aspected uh, phenomena. It blocks the reality principle, which is you know brings its own levels of anxiety, uh, especially to feminized types. They're the more armored because they can't deal with the reality principle. And that's why they want a big government and a big state and everything to protect them. The masculine person who built the world doesn't need any of that. They can deal with the challenges head on. But the credible rule is that the armoring is also there to prevent legitimate emotion. And these are stored in the actual cells and nodes of the body in the right brain from emanating forth. Well, we, on one level, we can understand it because it's full of rage and anger. Of course, you want to prevent it coming through. But the holistic person does not. So as Arthur Yanov told, called it, the primal screen. A healthy society allows that to come out. A Nietzschean society allows that to come out. But we don't. We, we armor it more and more and more. So the armored creature then uh, is, becomes a, uh, uh, you know, he, he becomes the victim of inner apartheid, inner psychic and biopsychic apartheid. He's, a, he's divided in, in and of himself. How can such a creature move from that point on through, you know, the development of the superego at seven years old and up to the you know, pubescent level and go out to do any good in the world? No, they're going to become rebels. They're going to become gang affiliated. They're going to become neurotic. They're going to become uh, anarchistic. All in outward plays of hostility against mom and dad, but uh, against our society. You know, the graffiti, the filth, the degeneracy, right? There's many, many aspects, and I go into these in detail in the articles on Dragon Mother, uh, uh, you know, so current, making sure that everyone can see that the, every phenomena of today's world that we see on the headlines and realize in the world around us can be linked to this. It's actually one of the most interesting studies. Definitely. Um, so I guess we've highlighted to an extent how matrophobia, I guess, plays out for the daughter, but how does this affect? men if we can go further into that well simply because that daughter is breeding the next generation of men it affects you because you're in a sea of it you may yeah. actually even have your own animosities is what the eatable complex brings out what is the son's relationship with the parent and here we're taking the rankian perspective and we really mean mother with father being important but derivative and here's the way it works in short right because this is so elaborate really for both the girl in her ultra state in her state of ultra matrophobia and for the boy believe it or not the father is a haven from the stygian abyss from the chaotic world and i call it the lunar world slightly following newman here that stygian medusan pit that ultra feminized swamp from which the child you know the semiotic level from which we all ascend, is a realm of chaos. And in order to meet the reality principle, reality itself demands evolution. So as we grow in infancy, by the time of uh, six years old, and it can be earlier, but we actually find a haven from it, a salvation from it, in what is known by the feminists as the, the solar patriarchal world. So that when I said earlier that they've skewed so much, and when you find out about it, you can kind of just go, ah, well, yawn, 
when a lot of them are talking. This is one of the points I was making. Mm. What they've airbrushed over and don't want you to know is that according to the psyche of every human being, every child, the masculine world, we're not exonerating it. We're just saying that in comparison to it, relatively to the solar world is a very straightforward, geometric. Ordered. Ordered. Thank you. And and concrete and lit world. Which 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 to a daughter who's riddled with matrophobia, you know, or even a male here, becomes a haven. This can't be overemphasized. So the solar world is not the demonic thing and the evil thing that the feminists want you to think it is, because of course their whole agenda is to drag you back and remain, and they're doing it. Our society now has become so ultra-feminized it is back into the lunar world. And they have billions of dollars behind them because they've linked up with other cults. But the thing is that the patriarchal world is actually considered a haven. doesn't mean it's perfect and a lot of fixes need to be done. We've yeah. conceded that. But generally speaking, the masculine world, so the daughter then wants to link with the father. Not, as Freud said, uh, in an erotic way. His penis envy, when properly understood, is just this. It's the identification of a daughter, not with the mother's world, contra the mother's world, but with the father's world and his friends and, you know, football. And so the child might become, you know, the girl might become somewhat tomboyish and so on. And for a guy, it's the same thing. The boy finally uh, escapes the the, uh, embryonic trap of the terrible mother. Now, the dragon mother facilitates the move of her child towards the solar world, makes it possible, eggs it on. The terrible mother inhibits it, tries to prevent it. And now that's happening even socially. Michael, what what do you think are, I know we touched on it a little bit in terms of going to therapy, but what are the solutions for men and women for the world we have today and the society that's in front of us and that we're a part of. Oh, to learn about this, you know, uh, the way I've written it down, all these different points, because otherwise you're not learning about it. You're just, again, you know, like a new age spinner rack thing. Oh, we got one part of it. Yeah. I'm going to go over there and find a Reishian or so. That's all very, very good. But the, remember I said it was about observation and just understanding. You've got to look at the historical, the anthropological, you know, trying to get your mind around the whole of the subject. Because one of the pitfalls of our world is that you know people just pick up on one element of it and run with that. The psyche is the grandest thing we have. It's immense. So what I've tried to do in my work is to condense what Jung has said about this, condense what Freud, Christiva, Rank, Reich, take out the essence so that people don't need to read you know, the libraries of work. Uh, the feminist point of view, the positives in that, right? And and get into it. And uh, I, I've done my work. That's why it took so long. Started in 1989. Why am I only writing about it now? Because it was a devil of a work, you see, to try and condense and also to pull out the more salient parts because there's lots of stuff in this that's really not necessary. You know, all the intellectual highways and byways, right? <clears throat> trying to shrink it down and that's what the websites were dedicated to. So that's it. I mean, go to dragonmother.org, start there, and then pick up. You'll find something that'll interest you. Because remember, the solution ultimately to your question is now to rebreed our children in a positive way. Breeding is not going to stop. But 
with this knowledge now there, uh, you know, mothers can bring up their children in a better way with less adultism, less matrophobia, less chance of the child identifying with the object of its hate and the more identification with the object of its love and its care. Yeah, so there are there's many solutions. Another one is this, and I brought it up in the Dark Mother Divine, which is the last article that I did on this. Um, and that is to from the again, looking at it from the Jungian point of view, Jung brings to bear, you know, many, many important things here. And so I've just taken those up uh, and with thinking of Erich Newman's, you know, uh, trajectory, expanded upon it. And that is that um don't forget that when we were talking typology, it's not just external. There are stereotypes. To really talk about archetypes is to talk about, you know, the inner female or feminine and the inner masculine or male. And that brings us then to the archetypes of Carl Jung, you know, the anima and the animus, about which so much drivel is talked uh, on the internet and other things, you know, it's really kind of comical, right? So these are where the parents come in is that they will be the first archetypes. Or they will be the first stereotypes to echo uh, the imagos that are inside. In other words, we'll project our inner feminine on the mother and female and, and father. That's just keeping it simple. And so they become the first two uh, receivers or projections of our inner imagos, which will sort of form you know, it'll help to form our inner archetypes based on these stereotypes outside. And then it moves on to other people as well. But the thing is that uh, the dynamics of the archetypes is very interesting because they play a role in everything we've been talking about. When you are brought up in an aberrant way <clears throat> by a terrible mother, this is one of the dynamics that goes haywire. And it leads you... <clears throat> It leads you as a person to, well, first of all, just not work properly with these archetypes. They're, they're not going to be assistive to you. They're actually going to turn into a hindrance to you. So this is about the inner, you know, apartheid I talked about. And the consequence of that, as revealed in this latest article, is that I believe that archetypes can actually turn malignant. And therefore, instead of being proper constitu constituents of the psyche, your own psyche can become ruinous. Mm -hmm. I call them demonic, just as a word, right? To show that archetypes are known to be you know, helpful, they're assistive, they're guides, they're angelic, and they, they are key to your individuation. And that ties into the hero's journey, as you know, and it ties into the whole idea of the Siddhartha road. Your archetypes work, walk with you, and assist you, and must, as the great magical work is, come to balance. So no man can be individuated. What does that mean? Individuation means when the opposites within you, no matter how extreme they may be, must come to alignment. That's what the tarot is all about. That's what it's all about. And some people have very extreme polarities that are hard to reconcile. Other people have it a little easier, whatever. But the idea is that the great magical ritual is the great work is to bring these opposites, emotion, intellect, intuition, reason, whatever, into alignment. You can't do that if your archetypes are not facilitative, not helping you. All the external guides in the world, 
cannot help you do this to make it snap without your own inner guides working. So what we've been talking about here in this program about the different uh, maldevelopments will uh, make it so that your archetypes actually turn malignant against you. So you'll have inner, you know, devilry. You'll have inner problems as well as external obstacles. And this is then, you know, the hell that's awaiting the human race. So then in Dark Mother Divine, I focus on the anima, the female uh, or the feminine archetype, so to speak. What might be the dynamics if that archetype was to work, you know, to prove the point? If it was to start working in a demonic way, how would we know? Is there any signs of it in our society? So it's a very powerful article that shows you exactly the things that have been going down now for probably the best part of 100 years, but certainly in more recent times, can entirely be you know, uh, back-engineered to the workings of a, of a malignant archetype. But that anima is what has been guiding women to get into this uh, neo-feminism political correctness, man-hating stuff, and so on. They're working, they're not, they're not representing the feminine at all. Yeah. So in the greatest irony and the greatest paradox, these women who are moving with the pink hats and, as you said, all of this uh, political correctness and militant <clears throat> feminine entitlement, they're basically the new gynocracy, they're by no means representing the true spirit of the feminine. So I walk people through that, you know, and show, show how that plays in yeah um i'm seeing i don't know if you're seeing this but what's was there's on the rise today is this whole hyper polarity relationship teaching where there's teachers who claim to be teachers insisting that men have no feminine side women have no masculine side um and i'm just curious as to what all this is going to give rise to as more and more people begin to buy into this idea um, can you comment on that? Yeah, well, see, that and more I see as this uh, messing about of the archetypes. It's like they've been loyal to us, but when we're disloyal to them repeatedly, they turn disloyal. And there's nothing you can do about it. Hmm. They literally turn black. Uh, and it's at this point that you can track many of these social aberrations, right? Uh, <clears throat> motherhood has been abused. Parenthood has been abused. People don't even know the basic Freudian models or anything like that. Uh, the child goes through puberty. Remember, and there's also a big tie-in here with the programming of the media and video games and uh, the subliminal aspects of that as well. And also in our media right now is the exaltation of womankind. It's back. We talked about... <coughs> sorry, we talked about... <coughs> we talked about how bad it went in the past. So when I speak of atavism, I mean that the most important atavistic program that's running there and has been for millennium is how women are going to get back to asserting their power in the way that they had it before, deifying themselves again. And that's what the New Age movement has allowed them. It's what political correctness and entitlement, and not even government, is buying into it. Now, this is what I call the ultra-feminization of our society, right? So, yeah, it's up to anybody to sit around and think, oh, well, how are we going to fix this? Or even if it can be fixed, because if it's so deep that it's psychological, you know, you're going to need some very, very special people to fix that. And the good news is we've had them. People like Wilhelm Reich, Otto Rank, and whatever, 
Irish Newman, you know, Carl Jung, we've actually had them. So it's about going back to their works and abstracting it from this perspective, laying it on the table. You know, that's what my work has been about. But when you find all of this negation of the masculine and feminine, don't you see? It's again an attempt to explain it all away. If you can, like in the gender area, if you can break up what is masculine and feminine, you're now a million miles away from the the, the place you need to be to affect to, to affect changes. Yeah, it's the pathological person in control. It, it's uh, you know moving furniture around on the Titanic. Yeah, well, the extremism is is the whole thing too. You know, based on what Joel said, I saw a post the other day where someone was saying that men shouldn't be emotionally connected to their children. Like in, in regards to this like extreme polarity teaching, which just seems ridiculous to me. But again, it harkens, harkens back to this time where that was the thing. So I don't know if there's any uh, correlation there, but that's fascinating oh, thing as well. Yeah, yeah. Remember, the male world is the haven, relatively speaking, to the soul that has been ultra feminized. Because you see, reality doesn't want you to be feminized. Reality is all about making the individuated differentiated soul <clears throat> who masculinizes himself. That's, that's reality. That's nature. Demanding that. So the feminine is the starting place. You can go back to the old Egyptian model of, you know, the primordial abyss. Yeah. Uh, and some schools will call that the origin. But it's not the origin because it's not conscious. The little drop that plops in and creates that little phallic bead of water and that pillar that is, and that's masculine, the primordial, primordial abyss of Nun, in one sense, doesn't even exist because it's not conscious of itself. So in the semiotic level that is dominated by the feminine, it is not conscious. It is the origin of consciousness. Nobody's denying that. But it is not itself conscious. Some motive arises out of it. That's that phallic, ethephallic part that strives upwards towards you know, perfection. And that is the masculine. So actually, the masculine is first. And it's only, a, it's an error, right, to think of the primordial abysses first. It, technically, it is. But ontologically, it's not. <clears throat> so the feminist type of mentality in politics or even in uh, psychology can't understand this. It thinks of the primordial abyss or the swamp from which all life comes as first. But no, what is first is the consciousness of how I can know what is a first and a second. Consciousness is how I can express these things right now. Think back on my origins. But that doesn't occur, the courtesy of the primordial swamp. That occurs because of that one motion, the bindu, right, the point in the circle. And that bindu, right, that wheel, that, that moment of uh, excitement is the masculine. So ontologically, the masculine is first because only it has the ability to look back at itself and discover that there is this dynamic of itself and the zero from which it has arisen. And so the masculine then has a, this greater understanding. And so it facilitates itself, right? 
to to continue on that journey and then creates its own world out of that. It's not perfect, but it's something that the masculine power is able to perfect because that's what it's on. It's on a journey of imperfection. To stand back and just point out endless flaws in that process is, is actually not constructive. It's, it's, it's destructive. Who gave you the right? Especially when you're not contributing to the thing being amended and fixed. So women once upon a time were masculine in the sense that they worked the fields, they worked alongside men, they shared their mentality, and they helped to perfect the civilization, and they made absolutely bloody sure that the children that they raised were strong and ethical and insightful and contemplative and deeply creative and also deeply reverencing nature. All of that's gone out the door. And we just talked about you know, the role of archetypes here and a lot of other atavistic stuff, and then the external media picking up on a lot of these things and working overtime to use women as a doomsday weapon. And I go to, into that in The Monstrous Feminine and you know other programs that try to unearth <clears throat> a lot of this. <clears throat> yeah. Thanks, Michael. I mean, we'd love to keep talking about all this. Yeah, yeah, such a fascinating conversation and we keep going on and on, but want to honor the time that we have here. And just for anyone listening, I mean, Joel and I have said it over and over again, but go to Unslave, go to Michael's websites. I mean, the amount of material, the amount of research um, is unfathomable, unfathomable, and it's incredible. So um, yeah, check out Dragon Mother, uh, the website, check out the book, Dragon Mother, Adultism, the the many episodes that you have and the, and the special presentations that you have in Unslaved. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, there's even good articles on uh, michaelassarin.com, slightly relevant to it, because the salvation is psychology and philosophy. There's no two ways about it. Uh, they've remained true to us all the way through. You know, uh, they are part of the masculine mindset uh, to help create the defenses and the tool set that we need to withstand what's happening right now, because it is a barrage. The uh, agenda of the ones who want to use this feminization to undermine everything in civilization have a lot in their toolkit to do so. You know, it's a real onslaught, right? So then we have to slowly fight against it. But, and a lot of that will mean coming back to a blank slate, you know, sort of starting with basic principles again, like Ayn Rand said, go back to your premises, but what is more of a premise than parenting? What is more of a premise than the, you know, your own origin? And dissecting that, what is the semiotic realm? Uh, what does the Oedipus complex really mean outside all of the muck-throwing of the feminists? Because remember, they knew what these people were finding out, these great psychologists. And so they systematically went through it to try to debunk a lot of it. And then they knew that the million-dollar apparatus of the universities would take that up and would then uh, you know, demonize and misrepresent all of the different psychologists. And slowly, slowly, that process has gone on. We didn't get a chance to talk about it, but Jungianism has fallen into a real pit. And some of these other teachings have been really uh, disfigured, you know. But uh, yeah, in my work, I try to present the original tenets in the purest possible way and intelligent projections and expand it in intelligent ways. So it, it is fascinating. We can leave it there. I really thank you guys for uh, being part of it. And as I say, we've got to get you all, both on Enslaved real soon for an update. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Everyone, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. 
Waking up in a time they think you're in a delusion Somebody set the alarms cause they be too busy snoozing I'm in a DeLorean Fast forward an evolution to a place where we can share that confusion Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion